God's word in Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32 says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he, being Jesus, said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, may we have our eyes opened again to see the depth of our sin, but the riches of your mercy and compassion and love for sinners. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's not a hypothetical question. You can answer out loud. This last Wednesday, we all celebrated? Halloween. Only one person knows? Reformation Sunday. There you go. Reformation Day. Not you pagans out there with Halloween. 501 years ago, in 1517, Martin Luther, he was a monk from Wittenberg, Germany. He nailed 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He was wanting to have a public discussion in the church about issues that he thought were going on in the church. Luther was inspired to write this because at the time, the church was saying, yes, you need Jesus, Jesus saves you, but then once he saves you, you need to do all this stuff to build on top of that, to add to what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus saves you, but if you don't do more, then what's going to happen is you're going to go to purgatory. And then in purgatory, you're going to have to spend years, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years, working and doing good deeds to pay off so you can eventually make it into heaven. And there are many things you could do to do good now. You could do deeds of penance. You could go view certain relics. You could buy what was called an indulgence. Indulgence was a sheet of paper in which you would pay for, and then the church would take off some of your time in purgatory. And one church leader, Johannes Tetzel, was especially good at selling these indulgences. He argued, well, look, this isn't just good for you. It's good for your family members. And he had this catchy little jingle. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, no hard-hearted soul would want Granny to stay in purgatory. So, of course, I just pay this money and she's out. Well, I should do that. That's a good thing to do. So Luther wrote his 95 Theses because of issues like this. And in the very first one he wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He went on to say that no church, no church leader, no pope could remove someone's punishment in purgatory or anything else <laughs> due to them observing some object, them giving some money, some doing some deed of penance. None of that mattered. All that would suffice was Jesus. And Luther got those ideas from passages like the one we're looking at today. If you have a bulletin, you'll see on the back that this passage, at least in my opinion, can be split up in three ways. First, in the first two verses, we see this call that Jesus extends. But then, in verses 29 through 30, we see a criticism, the criticism of Jesus' call. And then lastly, in verses 31 and 32, 
we're going to see that Jesus has a clarification. So verse 27, Jesus comes and he interacts with someone who is a social outcast. We look last week where Jesus interacted with a social outcast, physically a leper, but this is a social outcast for political reasons. You know, tax collectors were hated for two reasons. Not so much that they tax collected taxes, but that they collected taxes for Rome, the country that had conquered them. And so they were viewed by their fellow countrymen, by Jews, as traitors. Second, they were hated because they often abused their power and they would take more than they were allotted. So they were seen as traitors to their country and cheaters. And so the Jewish society responded to them in three ways. They punished them by one, not allowing them to be in their synagogues. They excommunicated them. Second, they shamed even their extended family. And third, they would not allow them even to be a witness in court. So Jesus comes, and how is he going to respond? Well, he comes to this tax collector named Levi, and Jesus commands him, follow me. Rather than distancing himself from him, Jesus wanted the man to follow him. Now, from the other Gospels, we see this man's also named Matthew. And Jesus is going to call him not just to be a generic follower, but one of his 12 disciples. And Jesus purposefully sought Levi out to show the people in his day and us still today the type of people he wants to follow him. Now, thankfully, in a couple days, we'll be past another election cycle, election season, but one thing that often happens in the election season is what is called an October surprise. Something will be revealed about one of the candidates in their past or something they've done. And because of what people now know, that candidate's campaign is derailed. They will not win because of their October surprise that was revealed. Well, being a former tax collector is a train derailing indictment against Levi but not in Jesus' eyes. While to the Jewish world it is a scandal to have such a person even as a friend, Jesus says, no, I want you to be one of my closest disciples, one of the twelve who will be with me. And what does Levi do? Verse 28, he responds by abandoning his position immediately. He arises and he follows Jesus. Now, this was extremely costly for he was abandoning his tax booth. You know, he was giving up a lucrative career forever. You know, unlike the other disciples we've seen, Peter, James, John, at any moment, they could stop following Jesus and there's still fish. They could still get a boat. They could return at any time. Levi is throwing away his career forever. Once he left the tax booth, they would never welcome him back. Now, Levi doesn't necessarily get rid of everything, because we're going to see in the story in a minute. He still has a house, and he still has the funds to throw a large feast. But here, he's literally going to follow Jesus in his steps. He will walk where he walks. You know, the call for most people is not to literally walk behind Jesus. It's to now follow him in our lifestyles. But Levi was one who was literally called to abandon his profession and follow Christ. Jesus' call for all of us is to follow him as our first commitment, as our priority with our total devotion. And again, for some, that will be a career change. But for most, it'll just be a change in how you live out your career. Now we do our best knowing that we're not just doing mundane tasks. 
We're doing them for God. We're called to serve Christ wherever we are. This is very important because often Christians will think, oh, if I could only be, if I could only have, then I could really serve God. Well, if I could go be a missionary, if I could be a pastor. And yet Jesus shows us in many ways that you don't need to be in any place. You don't need to have any vocation. Wherever you are, you are called to follow him there. And you can follow him as fully and as joyfully and as well as any other person in any other calling. Oz Guinness says this well. He says, it's not that most Christians are not where they ought to be. It is that most Christians are not what they ought to be where they are. So daily, we get to take up our cross and follow Jesus in what we consider the mundane task. But then we realize they're not mundane because every task can be done for Him. To follow Him in that area of our life. Well, last week we saw Jesus proclaim that He could forgive sins. And now in this story, He's showing He doesn't just forgive kind of bad people who have done a few things. Jesus forgives the worst kind of sinners. And that truth was a scandal to their society and even many today. And we see that next in the next section, verses 29 through 30, the criticism. So Levi, we see in verse 29, he makes a great feast in his house. And there was a large company, it says, of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Now throughout scripture, there's warnings of the dangers of riches distracting us from God. And how we should want to be rich, not in physical possessions that we can own, but rich in the things of God, possessions towards God. Yet in that, God never condemns riches in and of themselves. He blessed Abraham. He blessed Solomon. He blesses other people with riches. And then we can use those. And that's what Levi does. He uses his wealth to bring his friends to Jesus. He uses his wealth to invite his friends to a great party. Even today, one of the best ways to build relationships and share Christ is to invite people into your home. To make them good food and let, you, let them know that you care for them. Now, I'm not saying you need to barrage them with spiritual questions or corner them about their eternal destiny as they got mashed potatoes halfway to their mouth. However, pray. Pursue as you can meaningful conversations. And as God opens the door, as you've already opened your door, see how you can share what is most meaningful to your life. The forgiveness you have in Christ. Well, here, who are the natural friends of Levi? Well, everyone in Jewish society isn't his friends. So his friends are fellow tax collectors. Or what everyone else in society deems as sinners. This was a type of group of people that most in society want to disassociate with. And yet Jesus comes and he reclines at the table and he eats with them. Now, cultures view things differently. And in our culture, a meal can be something as quick as meeting someone over lunch or grabbing a quick bite to eat. But other cultures view meals much larger in a much more intimate way. You may remember a few months back when my friend Joshua Smith came and he was a missionary in Spain. And while he was there, he was interacting with one of the pastors and the pastor there was talking about the culture in the U.S. and the culture in Spain and how you serve. And Joshua was saying, well, you know, a lot of times pastors will meet men for lunch. They'll talk for an hour. And the pastor from Spain said, that is immoral 
to only eat a meal with someone for one hour. You know, from their culture, that's showing the person you don't care about them. A meal is not a tiny segment of time. It's a day. And this was hard for my friend Joshua because they would invite people over for lunch and they would still be there eight and nine o'clock at night as they'd served lunch and dinner and wondering, when are these people going to leave? Because in their society, a meal was not a simple get something to eat, say hi, catch up on the kids, and okay, we'll see you later. It was extended periods of time together. And that's most likely the type of culture in Jesus' day. An extended period of time where you're there for long hours, able to engage what they're really like, what their life is like, who they are. Now when the Pharisees and scribes hear of this, they go and grumble to Jesus' disciples. Now, presumably, this is at a later date, because it's not likely they would have been invited. Or even if they had, they make pretty clear they wouldn't want to have gone in the first place. But here the Pharisees are saying later on, well, we can't believe you would do this. They are a very conservative religious group who sought to keep Israel loyal to the commands of God. It is, we saw last week, Jesus is often going to come into sharp disagreement and conflict with them. For while they kept the letter of the law, they missed the spirit. Not only that, but they thought by their adherence to the law and keeping everything perfectly, that they were morally upright with God, and thus they were better than others. Thus, they're criticizing Jesus and his disciples because they're eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Now, the issue for them is not so much that Jesus ran into them. That's no big deal. Of course, you're going to see people like this, but that he knowingly went and associated with them, that he spent time with them. In their mind, there's no way someone who is a religious person, let alone someone claiming to be a religious leader, would ever do something as scandalous as that. And yet, sadly, I think that same spirit is alive and well in churches in the U.S. today. The attitude exists, maybe though it's never stated, that there are some people we never really want to be around. You know, their lifestyle or their viewpoints are so different or so immoral that we should never associate with them. And yet in this story, Jesus is showing that's the exact opposite of how we should act. You know, that's the very type of people that Jesus seeks out and encounters. Now think about this from the, Jew, the tax collector's mindset. They understand how everyone views them. There's no doubt in their mind. The Jewish society hates them. And now they're hearing all these stories about Jesus and this wonderful man who's healing people and welcoming lepers and all these things. And they might even be thinking, well, but he's a Jew. He would never welcome me. And yet Jesus goes out of his way to draw Levi to him. You know, Jesus doesn't sit back and grumble with his disciples and go, well, I don't get it. You know, I would welcome them if they came to me. No, Jesus doesn't wait for them to enter his doors. He goes and pursues them and goes into their life. He goes and shows that he seeks and saves all types of people. And so we should follow the model of our Savior and seek out those who might wrongly think, that we would want nothing to do with them. You know, a great example of that being lived out is in the life of Pastor Ken Smith. Some of you are probably quite familiar with this story. He was a pastor in Syracuse, New York, 
And in 1997, there was a group of men, and some of you may remember this, called the Promise Keepers. And they were going to come, and they were going to host an event in Syracuse. Well, there was a professor at Syracuse University. Her name was Rosaria, and she was very against groups like the Promise Keepers. So she wrote this scathing letter against them, and why the city and the university should not want them anywhere near them. Well, Pastor Ken Smith wrote a kind and thoughtful response. Except Rosaria was not just someone who was opposed to this. She was someone in what would normally be considered very anti-Christian. She was a professor in the English department in women's studies. And she was the advisor for the LGBT student group. She was the person who'd written the policy for Syracuse University for same-sex couples. And she actively lobbied for LGBT claims and aims. But Ken didn't let all that distract him or bother him. He reached out. And only did he write a letter to contradict her argument. He and his wife then invited her into their home. And then over months, over years, they had meals with her. And they talked with her. And she began to see that, oh, not just did I read that these people were different. I'm seeing that they actually do love and care for me and as occasions arose they did discuss the bible and they became deep friends and over time through the friendship of the smiths her own heart was changed and she came to christ herself now she's written multiple books and you can read about it and she talks about this quite extensively but what she'll often talk about is the transformative way god used relationships and hospitality in her life You know, sadly, we in the U.S. have often inverted the principles of Christ. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13, where we'll see what Christ calls us to, and sadly the opposite of which we always live. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13. You were supposed to be welcoming and accepting, though not approving, of the sin of outsiders. And we are to judge those who are acting in sin, who are insiders or who are professing Christians. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9-13. through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And a lot of Christians stop there. That's right. We don't want any of those people around. Except he goes on and says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. That's not what he's meaning at all. Or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so they're claiming to be Christians, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or violer, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul is clear. We actually should be eating with the sexually immoral who are not believers. And you got to remember, eating with them is not meeting them at McDonald's. There's no restaurants in first century. Eating with them means, will you come to my house? It's inviting them to be a part of your life. However, he's also clear that those who claim to follow Christ but they live in an unrepentant lifestyle of sin. And that's the key. It's unrepentant. It's not that they've stumbled once or they've done anything wrong. But if they're professing Christ and they won't turn from their sin, 
It's those people we should not eat with. And yet, what Paul just said is the exact opposite of many professing Christians and churches in the United States. Sin in the church is brushed under. It's treated as no big deal. Sin of believers is, ah, you know, well, you know, God's going to forgive. However, we stand up and we condemn all those people out in the world because they have these policies and they're doing these sins and aren't they horrible and we need to take care of that. And yet that's the exact opposite. We should be seeking out people in the world who are living in ways that are opposed to God. And then those in the church who are not wanting to follow, those we should be judgmental of. Not in a harsh way, but in love. And so we have to do what we often hate. And that is give up our time and give up our freedom to welcome people in. You know, most of us would rather write a check or attend an event or pay someone to go love those people. You know, it's our time. This is my house. This is my castle. And so we all know Christ gives us those things. We're stewards of time. We're stewards of our homes. And he says, I've given you time and I've given you homes to welcome the outcast, the oppressed, and all those who society says are unreachable because he wants to forgive and so jesus responds to this in our third point the clarification back in luke chapter 5 31 through 32 and to clarify to make sure that the pharisees and later people understand what jesus is doing he says in luke 5 31 those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick and so he's using this medical illustration makes the common obvious statement that look if you're not sick you're not going to go to the doctor and thus he didn't come for the righteous he came to call sinners to repentance now there's two initial things that we need to realize about jesus statement and that's first that jesus is talking to them sarcastically he doesn't actually think they are righteous earlier we had read luke 18 and there it talks about how they think they are righteous it's a self-righteousness because i do all these good things i'm a righteous person and jesus says well that's not really righteousness at all jesus in that story said those who are righteous or will be declared righteous is those who admit they have no righteousness of their own it's those who admit i'm not good enough i need god's mercy in other words they realize that they're sinners who jesus came to deliver well, the second thing to notice is that Jesus is passing a condemnation or a verdict. He is saying people are sinners, or in other words, that they're messed up and flawed. I say that because often people will read stories like this and then twist these wonderful words into arguing that Jesus never condemned anyone. Well, Jesus just said he came for sinners. He's condemning people. He's saying we're sinners, yet Jesus doesn't do what we often do. And doesn't say, because of their sinful condition, I won't associate with them. He says, rather, if they'll admit their sinful condition, then I want to associate with them. And so the way Jesus does this is drastically different than us. He both declares their guilt and his acceptance of them if they will own that guilt. And thus his acceptance of them should not be twisted as though he's approving of their lifestyles at all and so the pharisees hear this and you can just imagine if they understand that he's condemning them that they're thinking what us sinners 
You know, we're the ones who are at the synagogue. We're the ones giving our tithe. We follow the law. This is offensive. And even today, Christians will say, well, this is offensive language. We, we shouldn't be talking about this stuff all the time. We need to minimize it. You know, we need to focus on the positive and the good aspects of Christianity. And, you know, talking about sin, repentance, judgment. You know, we'll, we'll deal with that in discipleship later on. And yet, that's not an option we can take. Because this was not like a side task of Jesus or a tangent to his mission. He says very clearly his mission was to call sinners to repentance. And so if we're going to be faithful to his mission, that has to be our mission as well. And so to understand that, we have to understand the two key words he uses, sinners and repentance. So first, sin. You know, words like sin and sinners can seem like words from a bygone era. Words that can have no meaning in a secular or modern world where we think, Research can find all the problems and solutions to our problems. However, let's get rid of the word sin momentarily and think of it from a different angle. No matter what time, no matter what culture, no matter what society that people have lived in, they've always said, you know, these are things you should do and these are things you shouldn't do. These are moral things. These are immoral. So we could talk in those categories. Now, in our society, it's become more common to say, you know, there's no absolute moral standard. Everyone can live the way they want. There's no right or wrong morally. Except it's interesting, those, or we should say revealing, that those who most strongly argued for that, that there are no standards, have been the most vociferous in arguing that some political leaders now are immoral, that their policies are immoral. And what are they revealing? That there is a standard of morality. That there are some things that are right or wrong. Now the interesting thing behind that is that not only do people know that there's some moral standard, but every honest person will then admit, I actually don't keep all the standards that I think we should keep. You know, even if you take out the biblical standard and you come up with any standard, if people are honest, they'll admit at times, I want to do the very things I know that I shouldn't do. So that raises a dilemma. Why do we do the very things we know we shouldn't? You know, one answer is, well, society has corrupted us. You know, children, they're born innocent and pure, but then society comes and corrupts them, so then they become evil and do all these wicked things. Except let's just back that up. So their parents had to become corrupt, and you keep backing up, and eventually you get to the first couple of children who corrupted them. You have to come from somewhere. You just can't say society because society is just people. And so society could only come corrupt if they were initially people corrupt. And so really appealing to society is a dead-end argument. And we could walk through all kinds of proposals. But really Christ is saying here that the issue is that it's not just the things you do. It's that you have a sin nature that we're born Due to Adam and Eve's rejection of God with a bent toward ourselves. With a bent towards wanting to rule our own life. To rejecting God. And again, even if you reject the biblical answer, the hard facts on the ground support the initial conclusion. And that is that there's something inside of us that wants to do the opposite of what we know we should do. About a year and a half ago, we had a bag of sugar. And at the top of the bag... They had written 
please do not look at the bottom. Now, we all know, what does that label make everyone want to do? Look at the bottom. Why do the marketers put it there? Because they know reality. That as soon as we are told something, don't do this, we want to do it. You know, marketers care about reality, and the reality is we all have a sense of right and wrong. And we do the very things we're told not to do. And the message of Jesus, the gospel, is only good news to those who admit that. Who admit there's something inside me, call it what you will, Jesus calls it sin. There's something inside me that wants to do what I don't want to do. There's something in me that does the things I shouldn't do. And Jesus is saying, look, you can come from that. I call it sin. It's a power inside you. C.S. Lewis writes, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they've done anything to repent of and do not feel that they need any forgiveness. All I'm doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the terrifying facts. Of course, Lewis goes on, I quite agree that Christianity is in the long run a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. And it is not useful at all trying to get on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing that you cannot have by looking for it. If you look for the truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only wishful thinking to begin with and in the end, despair. So again, and I've said this several times, the, the clear facts are everyone has a standard. Everyone then goes against their own standard. So what are we going to do? Well, Jesus says that issue is that we're sinners. They have a nature that wants to rule our own life and go our own way. And so we're responsible and we're in a dreadful situation. But he says there's good news because I call sinners to repentance. And so that begs the second question, what is repentance? So first we need to say what repentance is not. Repentance is often thought of like this. Repentance is the husband who forgot his wedding anniversary, so he buys flowers. It's the kid who comes home knowing he has to get a signature on a failing report card, so he cleans up the house first. Well, that's penance. That's doing good things to make up for the bad. Repentance is not penance. Doing more good to make up for the bad. In religious life, penance is feeling guilty. So you go to church. You give money to church. You read your Bible. You pray. In secular life, it's giving money to charity. It's doing community service. It's making sure to buy only locally sourced and economically sustainable products. Now those religious deeds or those secular deeds can be good. Any of those can be good things to do. The question is, why are we doing them? If we're thinking that if I do more of these good things than these bad things, we're thinking that penance is what brings me back to God. Except Jesus is not saying repentance is what sinners, penance is what sinners need. He says repentance is. And here Jesus is saying it's not penance. You need more than that. You need to repent. Well, secondly, repentance is not beating ourselves up emotionally or feeling very guilty. Mark Twain, when his youth had some tragic things happen in his hometown, and he wrote, Those were awful nights, nights of despair, nights shared with the bitterness of death. 
And after each tragedy, I recognized the warning and repented, repentant and begged, begged like a coward, begged like a dog. Twain was scared, and he feared greatly for his life over the things he'd done. Except all it was was the worldly grief that Paul warns of in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul says there, worldly grief produces a repentance, sorry, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, feeling guilty over your actions, while a necessary and good thing, is not necessarily repentance. Your repentance is more than that. So to understand repentance, we need to know three things about it. That it's drastic, joyful, and daily. First, repentance is drastic because it's an about face. It's a turnaround. It's a complete change of your mind. It's saying that the way you are living and the way you are thinking are wrong and you must stop and change. You consider Jesus' metaphor. He's talking about sickness and the need for medical help. You're under ordinary circumstances. If someone said, hey, could I cut you? You'd be like, no, you can't cut me. I would never let anyone cut me. However, if I went and had tests run and a doctor said to me, you have this tumor that if it's not taken out will end your life, then I would say, would you please cut me open? Take it out. I know my horrible situation, so I'm going to do something drastic. And when we realize the drastic situation we're in, then we want the drastic action, repentance. But second, repentance is joyful. Now, after just saying it's drastic, that might seem, well, that can't be joyful if it's drastic. But this is really the point where most people, even Christians, misunderstand what repentance is. So consider that analogy again, the tumor patient. You know, after the surgery, if the doctor comes in and says, wonderful news, we got the tumor out and it looks like everything going normal, you're going to have a full recovery. Well, then the patient responds with joy. You know, the problem with our so-called repentance is that it often short circuits or doesn't finish the track. Again, repentance is not merely beating yourself up for all the bad things you've done feeling horrible about them. Your repentance is a change of mind that leads to a changed life. It's a turning around. So no rather than looking at our sin and focusing on us, we repent, we turn, and then we're looking at what? We're looking at Christ. You know, we haven't fully repented if when we're done, we're still looking at our sin. Repentance is when we're done looking at our sin and we're focused on Christ. And when we focus on Christ, that brings joy. We see no longer our sin. We see His righteousness. We see His compassion. We see His forgiveness. We see Him taking our sin and accepting us. So in other words, true repentance is just the flip side of the coin of faith in Christ. And when we get our eyes off our sin and we instead get them on Christ, we're filled with joy. You know, it's here that the Christian faith can really appear to be a paradox or a contradiction in terms. So to be happy, to have joy, you have to realize your guilt. To know joy, you have to walk through the pit of despair. Yes. You know, as Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And here, we see that sadly those who are trying to help the Christian faith 
often harm it. By trying to say, look, let's focus on the positives. Let's not talk about sin or repentance. Let's just talk about the good things Christ does for us. They undercut the motivation and the power to see the good things. Because until we've seen that we have sin and that we need to repent, then the good things aren't that wonderful. It's like someone coming and saying, hey, we have a surgeon who will cut you. I don't want anyone to come and cut me. But once I see the tumor in my life, then I want the good news of the doctor who can heal me. Again, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And that leads to the third aspect of repentance, and that it must be daily. You may remember from the beginning, Martin Luther's first thesis was, Christ calls us to a lifestyle of repentance. You know, we often think, repenting, repentance. That's what someone needs to do to be saved. That's how you become a Christian. And then after you're saved, you need to get busy. You need to start doing all these things. And while it's definitely true that we play an active part in growing in our faith in the Christian walk, we never move beyond the need to repent, beyond the need of Christ, beyond the need of the gospel. It has often been said, the gospel of repentance is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, the beginning steps, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. You know, each day we should recognize the sins in our life and repent of them. You know, our common assumption is that there's are big sins out there, and if we avoid those, we're doing all right. And yet, it's often the subtle ones that are used to lead us away from God. You may have read C.S. Lewis' fictional work, The Screw Tape Letters. In it, there's a senior de- demon trying to instruct a junior demon how to lead people away from God. And in one chapter, the senior demon writes, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Here, Lewis is insightfully noting how we can be led astray while the whole time we avoid the quote-unquote big sins. You know, this is where the pharisaical attitude comes from. It reduces sin only to those big, horrible, external things you do, like murder, or adultery, or stealing from your company. And then we think, well, I don't do any of those things. And so we begin to get proud and arrogant and look down on those quote-unquote sinners out there in the world. Except God wants us to realize we're all sinners. And sin is not just the quote-unquote big items. It's the covetousness. It's the lustful thoughts. It's the desires and thoughts that are against Him. It's the desire to run our own life. And while it's true that there might be some people who overtly, externally do more wicked things than I do, inside, as Paul says, we are each the chief of sinners. And so a question we must ask ourselves is, have I repented of anything lately? If you're not daily repenting of sin, then you will not daily find joy in Christ. He's the great physician for the sick, the sweet savior for sinners. If he's merely a pillow for the already perfect, then he's not going to bring much joy and delight. Before Jesus, we all stand condemned But he also comes to us saying he will accept us as not as we are in our sin, but he'll change us. He'll accept us as we are because 
He will make us new. He will give us his righteousness. And so this is not only wonderful news. This is also a mission that we're to emulate. And so we have to ask, are there some people that we hope we never have to associate with? You know, if they walked in, we might be friendly. We might say hi, but we really wouldn't want to fold them into our lives. Do we want to go out and beckon them in? You know, the call is not only to follow Jesus by admitting our unrighteousness, but then to be people who call other unrighteous people to Christ. I'll conclude with this parable by Brent Hunter. You may have heard it before. And it's the way this can subtly happen in the lives of Christians and churches. He tells that on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut. And there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so they became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought. And new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the buildings were so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still giving, given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside at the next meeting there was a split in the membership most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal pattern of the club but some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out they were still called a life-saving station But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but now... Most people drown. And so may we delight not only in the fact that Christ saves sinners like us, but may we continue in that mission as he did and go out and seek those and draw them in. Want them to be a part of us so they might know the good news. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so prone to look down on others, to think we are better because of our actions or lifestyles. Lord, forgive us. Help us to see that 
before you, we all stand condemned. And yet you open wide your arms and you beckon us in. Lord, may we as a church be going out, seeking and saving. And would you bless those efforts that people would come to know you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.